countries. And when you say food, that's not food, that's cuisine. When you say cuisine, that's history. So you've got to be a foodie. I mean, if you're not a foodie, why would you be interested in growing stuff? Hello and welcome to My Signature Dish, episode 7. I'm Ollie Horn, it's a pleasure to have you back. This is the podcast where I speak to talented home cooks, find out their story, what they think about food, and talk about their signature dish. In this episode, I'm speaking to Professor Saeed Azam Ali. Uh, this is actually another remote recording. So, uh, remember a couple of episodes ago, I tried to use this software where I could do my podcast recording uh, remotely, and the software was just rubbish. Um, well, we're moving to a different bit of software. I mean, you're not interested in this at all, really, are you? But the point is, you'll hear it, and you'll hear that it sounds really good. Uh, and I hope that um, I get emails about positive sound quality uh, in the same volume that I receive emails about negative sound quality. Um, so, uh, Saeed. Uh, is actually from London. He, he spent his childhood in London and he studied uh, in Wales uh, and then he uh, studied for a PhD at the University of Nottingham and then he travelled the world. Then he's, his academic career has taken him all over the place and we discuss uh, some of that travelling uh, and also what he's doing now in Malaysia during this podcast. Uh, it's a little bit more, I guess, technical and scientific uh, than some of our other conversations um, and I think we spend a little bit less time than I would have liked actually talking about his signature dish but I learned lots and lots uh, about basically a, a part of science that I hadn't really thought about before uh, in the course of this interview and I think that you're going to get something from it too if you're interested about basically the provenance of the food that we're buying in the supermarket. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Professor Saeed. Enjoy! If I tell you there's 7,000 crops that human beings have grown throughout our history, how many do you think, how many do you think now feed more than half the planet? Um, of 7,000 crops, I would say, uh, I don't know, half, a couple of thousand? Right. Well, the answer is four. So 7,000 crops and four of them now feed more than half the population, 60% of the world's food comes from four plants. And what are these these four crops? So they're wheat, they're rice, they're maize, they're soya. And uh, wherever you go, you will eat the same or increasingly eat the same crops made into different products. And if I added another 25 or so, 30 crops are now producing most of the world's food, about 95% of the world's food coming from these 30 crops. But why is that a problem though? Well, the logic of it is why not three crops? Why not two crops? You know, what do we do when we reduce the choice of crops to the minimum if something happened to one of them? Because when you've got 7.4 billion people and they're you know, obviously distributed around the planet, the same crops are being sent all over the world to those 7.4 billion people. And the, the, the answer is exactly the question you've asked. Well, what's wrong with that? You know, they're super crops. They're the major crops. They're the staple crops. They're the ones we all like, the ones we all eat. The problem is there won't be enough in the future. And that's why Crops for the Future and this research center is so important because 7.4 billion people become 10 billion people as we grow in the next generation. And of course, it's not getting colder, it's getting hotter. So when we add three degrees temperature to 2.6 billion more people, do you think those four crops will then be enough? And if they aren't, we better have an alternative because we're all dependent on the same crops. 
for someone like me that says, well, even if I think about rice, there's loads of different types of rice, and I think, well, some types of rice might grow in certain paddy fields in some parts of the world, and maybe a um, you know a, a shorter grain rice might be a little bit more robust, or may- hmm. what, what what is it that can persuade me that that in my lifetime these four staples need to become forty or four hundred or even four thousand? Well, I would say, and, and there's something which we've learned. Um, we want you to be interested in food, and we want you to eat food from different parts of the world. So when I say these 7,000 crops, they don't all have to come from one place and all have to be, you know, if I go down a, I go down a supermarket aisle. When I got here and I thought, oh, we're in Malaysia, let's go shopping. We walked down the same supermarket aisles that we would get in the UK, selling the same products distributed all over the world. And in the first instance, you go, oh, great, we've got a, you know, a really nice restaurant, we've got a really nice supermarket, it's just like Europe. The next question is, why? You know, why is it just like Europe? Why are we actually eating the same foods and why are they homogenized and processed into the same products? Because Southeast Asia is a treasure trove of cuisines, cultures, and, of course, traditions about food. And we lose that every time we stop growing some of these crops and celebrating local cuisines. And we have this sort of habit of trying to aspire to a single diet around the world. And, you know, that's really been the you know the last 20, 30 years. We've got this experiment we've never been in before that we're all eating the same food. And what's driven that homogeneity b- between different countries? Well, lots of reasons. One of which, of course, is the big crops produce high yields and therefore they're very profitable. And if you grow these big crops on you know, mechanized land and lots of inputs and industrial systems, you can get very high yields out of them. And of course, the yield, when you sit down and look at the yield, what is the content of that yield is primarily carbohydrates, primarily is calories. And, and when we had to feed the planet in the 60s, uh, you know, something called the Green Revolution was, was initiated and delivered, hugely successful because it's, it stemmed and then stopped famine in Africa and Asia and, and, and of course, uh, other parts of the world. And what we then got was these four super crops were feeding more and more people, and they were successfully yielding very high yields and producing lots of products. So the logic in the 60s and 70s was, was perfectly reasonable. You know, we've got to feed people. What we haven't realized, and we're beginning to now realize, is giving them calories isn't enough. And you then have to start saying, what else do people need apart from calories? And so it's not filling their bellies anymore. It's actually nourishing them. And that's why diversity, for lots of reasons, provides sources of nourishment, sources of nutrition. And, of course, that leads to interesting foods. Because there's only one way. I mean, mean, you can make lots of things out of potatoes and wheat and rice uh, and soya but they're still the ingredients are the same. You go down the supermarket aisle and see thousands of products, but the ingredients are the same, and that's the risk. So let's go back to your trip to Africa. Which, which country were you, were you in? I was in Niger, West Africa. And uh, just as an example, and I'll, sh- I'll, I'll mention this, because I worked on, a, on an African crop called millet, pearl millet, and uh, French West Africans, of course, aspire to be French. I mean, they look very much at France as their, as their cultural home. And they would wait, and I used to go to the supermarket, I mentioned supermarkets, but I went to the supermarket in Niamey, the capital of, um, of Niger, and French West Africans were waiting for the plane to arrive from Paris to bring baguette. <laughs> so they were bringing French bread to feed West Africans who drove past 
millet and sorghum and fonio and bambara groundnut and all of these local crops because they were seen to be poor people's crops. There was a stigma attached to them, whereas aspirational French, uh, aspirational French West Africans wanted French food. So that was the, that was the you know, the self-image is a very important part of why people eat food. And that became my, my experience was really that, uh, you know, we were going literally driving past all of these local crops because people had driven past them in terms of their cultural identity and aspirations. Because I, I do wonder with food whether there's a kind of cultural arbitrage that goes on even today. You know, that food that might be a staple or, or considered kind of poor man's food in one country. Uh, all you have to do is take it to the other side of the world and dress it up with a fancy name, put it in a nice bowl, and suddenly it costs 20, 30 pounds in an, in an well, ethnic restaurant. Isn't it funny? Because there's a very uh, good friend of ours called Pierre Tiam, and he's a Senegalese, uh, you know, he's a he's celebrity chef from Senegal who opened restaurants in New York selling African food and he started looking at Fonio and he started looking at these crops that I mentioned, these traditional African crops and because they're being sold in restaurants in New York, French West Africans suddenly want to reclaim them as their foods. So there you go, that's aspirational and now the reverse psychology is, well if it's good enough for New Yorkers and they're eating it in top end restaurants paying top dollar for it, why don't we actually celebrate some of these foods ourselves? Precisely. I, I noticed this, by the way, with plantain. Plantain wasn't even on my radar until until I took a trip to West Africa last year. And, and I realised it must only be sold in, in certain uh, ethnic shops in certain parts of London until only recently. And now it's, it's, it's a really kind of fashionable side dish in yeah. certain restaurants. And now you're seeing it in, you know, Whole Foods and really middle class super, supermarkets. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so, you know, I, I suppose uh, if one impetus for us having biodiversity is simply social status and that might be better than uh, as good a reason as any other well that would help but social status of course depends on only the rich people getting access to all these foods it's actually got to go across the whole social spectrum it's got to go urban to rural and its primary reason of course it has to be interest because otherwise people don't eat food you know because it's something which they hate eating and they're being told to eat it because it's good for them but it's got to come out of cuisine and cuisine has to come out of culture because without a narrative, we're just eating food, aren't we? And what we're losing is the history and culture and traditions and knowledge systems about these foods. And that's really why uh, the sort of work we're doing is so interconnected. Everyone said, oh, it's agriculture, you're growing crops. It isn't. It's everything. It's social, it's cultural, it's geographical, it's ethnic, and, of course, it's innovation. Because we've got to make these old crops into new foods as well. So you went back to the University of Nottingham after having gone to Niger saying, hey, look, I've come across these fascinating crops. What was it that excited you about them? Had you tried them? Had you eaten them and gone, hey, this, I've never had anything like this before? Well, yeah, first of all, you look at them and say, that's odd. They're still there. Why aren't we doing any research on them? Because they're very resistant to drought and heat stress. Then you say, well, actually, people are growing them and making them into food. Let's taste the food. And the food, of course, was was good, but not great. You know, at the end of the day, these are traditional ingredients. You've got to make them into something interesting, and that, that doesn't always happen, you know, unless you've got a driver to make, you know, interesting cuisines out of them because they're still basically feeding people. But when I went to Nottingham, or came back to Nottingham and started looking, the real incentive for me was that everyone told me this was a waste of time and it wasn't the way I should be following my career because there was no career in these alternative crops. Uh, that same question, you know, if they were any good, we'd have discovered them by now. So my 
professors and academic advisors were saying, you'll never publish anything on these crops. There's never going to be a career because no one wants to research something which no one else is interested in. The journals aren't going to pick up any of this. So that was the impetus, was to prove them wrong and to show them that actually there was something fundamental about these crops that gave them advantages. Now, as I say, we'd never even mentioned climate change, but we were getting into an era where it was getting more difficult, the environment was getting more challenging, and uh, we were just missing, in plain sight, the opportunity that some of these crops gave us. So that's really what got me interested in setting up my own unit, which was called <laughs> the uh, Underutilized crops, uh, Tropical Crops Research Unit, which was to look at these crops at Nottingham. What does a challenging environment mean for, for crops? What does a crop need in order to flourish? Well, it needs water, and it needs the right temperature, and it needs nutrients. And the nutrients usually are provided by fertilizers. So it needs that combination. And the problem when we do field experiments, grow stuff in the field, you never quite know which is the thing that's stopping the crop reaching its potential. And that's why I need good scientists and, and certainly good uh, controlled environments, glasshouses and things, where you can actually start looking at these in rather more detail, look at particular factors that might be the cause and how we can overcome those. So the challenge partly is what we're now seeing, climate change and course temperatures and CO2 levels going up. The other is simply it's getting more volatile out there. The environments are getting more unpredictable. And I think, you know, don't have to be a scientist to know that the winters aren't what they were, summers aren't what they were. Everything's getting very blurred in terms of the seasons. And, of course, crops are there in the field experiencing that volatility. And that's why we're interested in crops that are resilient rather than the ones that produce just the highest yields. And resilience, right. is, I think, that's the big issue now, is can we find resilience to climate change? But I, I suppose, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're still interested in crops which ultimately have the highest yield. I mean, still the the the, the imperative, uh, presumably, is a crop that can earn farmers lots of money because it can produce lots of calories for lots of people for for, for a lesser amount of money. Is, um, is that is that no. still no, what, what's driving your research? No, no, and that is driving research, and that's really what the the dynamic now and the shift is to something which we call. Uh, yield for nutrition. So when you when you sit down and go, we grew crops for profit, which is perfectly, you know, why should farmers not have profits and why shouldn't we be producing crops that, you know, people can actually sell? S but, but the paradigm was yield for profit and then you go, well, calories give you the highest yield, so let's grow crops which are what they call staple crops, which are uh, basically calorie crops. Now we're saying actually we've got this huge deficit of nutrition. And so we actually have to grow crops for nutrition. Now, if we had profitable yield for nutrition, we've now got the formula that really addresses the big challenges of our time, which is not food security. And everyone says, oh, it's food security, let's feed people. It's actually nutrition and bad diets are killing us. And if you start looking at the diets we eat now, which are micronutrient def deficient. So if I tell you now that we've got something called hidden hunger, where people are well fed, but they're short of micronutrients, there's sort of zinc and selenium and iron and vitamins in their diet, which is affecting children because children are stunted. It's affecting brain development. It's affecting maternal, uh, you know, mothers. And if you, if you look at that, that's the big cost to society because who's going to pay the bill? If you stunt a child, you can't unstunt them. If you have deficiencies that cause brain, uh, poor brain development, you can't reverse that. 
And the worst one, of course, is obesity, because when people go to uh, situations where they're overweight and obese, uh, the food industry is not paying the bill. The, the health sector is paying the bill. You know, the Ministry of Health pays the bill for bad agriculture and bad food. So this is now what the wake-up call for governments is, is they are paying the bill and the community is paying the price of bad nutrition. Now, how you incentivize that is another matter because you can't sell nutrients to the same yield as you can sell calories. In, in the space of the time that you've been researching this, have there been any breakthroughs that have made you excited that this might be something that we can turn around in your professional lifetime? Uh, I hope so. But <laughs> the, the challenge is how do we get some of these crops to market? And the challenge was and is pretty much in university systems supply driven. Do some research, do some fundamental research, do some applied research and see if you can get a commercial product which you can put to market. What we have learned is try it the other way around. Let's get a market for these crops and drive research to meet the market. So we're looking at products from these underutilized crops that are suitable for markets for food and nutrition and energy and, and animal feed, all these sorts of things which we're now going to need. We're starting to look for crops that meet the need rather than here's my favorite crop, what can I do with it? So that's a dynamic. And when you say look for, uh, uh, do you mean that literally that you're going out in the world and trying to find crops which, uh, which, which haven't been mass commercialized yet? Or is there also an, an element of, of us intervening as well? Well, we don't prospect for crops. What we do is ask people to come and work with us. So Crops of the Future is a global center. It's the only one dedicated solely to these alternative underutilized orphan crops. But we're based in Malaysia, but we're a global center. So we're really all about building partnerships and networks and contacts with those who are growing their own crops in their own communities and their own environments and then sharing knowledge. Some of these crops are grown in many different countries on a small scale. Some of them are particular to one region but have particular properties. Some of them could be taken to other places where they could be suitable. Now unless we've got the knowledge systems, we haven't got the data, we haven't got the evidence, we can't make decisions. So at its core we are a knowledge center for the world's alternative crops and then we ask people to share the knowledge with us and then give them back something which is more than just here's your knowledge, but here's what you might do with your knowledge that could improve your, your particular crops and your particular circumstances. And are, are you focusing on a particular part of the world first? Are, are there, is there certain, for want of a better expression, low-hanging fruit uh, that, that we, can, <laughs> um, we can pick first? Well, let's start with where do most people live? They live, uh, you know, 80% of the world lives in the tropics, so that's a good place to start. Let's start in the tropics and have a look at where we've got biodiversity. Well, that's where we're sitting on. Uh, Malaysia is the treasure trove of biodiversity. And then let's have a look at parts of the world which are not able to feed themselves because their crops are not succeeding because the business as usual model, which is, you know, let's grow the big crops all over the world, isn't working for large parts of the world. So there's a lot of incentives there, but it starts with the tropics because that is the front line for climate change. You know, with respect, Iceland's not going to suffer immediately from climate change, whereas the equator right across the world is because that's where the temperatures are going to be most extreme. My principle is that we can't depend on other people to grow our food. It was quite fashionable in the 60s and 70s to say, we can grow something else or we can, we've got oil or we've got technology. We'll just trade that for food. And now that is a very risky strategy. A, because 
once food becomes expensive, people will sell it at the price they want to sell it to you, not when you want to buy it, but what they want to sell. Then they're going to distribute it on big ships and huge carbon footprint you know, supply chains around the world, and you're dependent on that. It's vulnerable. And then it's just boring. <laughs> you know, If you're using the same ingredients all over the world, what happened to everything else? And, and, and the fundamental reason for growing these underutilized crops is they grow in parts of the world where the big crops won't grow, and it makes agriculture much more interesting. Now, if I add to that, agriculture doesn't have to be in fields far away from where people live. And more than half the world now lives in cities. We need two big changes. One is we've got to get away from the idea that farmers are a long way away and old, because our farmers are getting older and they're getting more and more sort of disconnected from, from the rest of society. Uh, and we don't have to sit down and say, Farming has to be old-fashioned and backward-looking and traditional. Farming can be very, very, really is, and that's why these sorts of uh, initiatives which are bringing young people into agriculture are actually the future, because young people becoming agriculturalists in urban settings, vertical farming, rooftops, you know, urban spaces, that's where the interest in agriculture needs to be, needs to be rediscovered, not least because there's a lot of space which we're not using, which we could, and there's a lot of ideas that won't come from traditional farms. They're going to have to come from very different uh, perspectives that people have never done farming before can bring ideas that, that break this model of, of tradition. Uh, and so presumably you're championing certain crops which might be uh, perfectly suited to flourish in, say, my small home kitchen unit that has uh, a very small amount of light uh, and, and maybe is only currently suitable for a very small herb garden. What you're suggesting is there might be a whole myriad of other crops which I could be adding to my little uh, internal home kitchen that one day might even be able to provide the primary source of, I don't know, even my protein in my meal. Well, yeah. I mean, if you if you take it to the, to the next step... Um, I'm not saying we're going to grow rice and wheat on rooftops because the scale you need to grow those crops is very big. But I am saying you could use uh, urban spaces and vertical farms to grow nutritious ingredients on a small scale because the nutrition then becomes viable because it's not yield, it's actually producing something which you want, which is going to be good for you. But take it to the next step. What about flavors? We can grow crops that are actually full of flavor that we can use to add to the big crops. So we can add, say, you know, I'm going to mention these crops because they're the ones we work on, but a crop like Moringa, which you won't have yourself probably eaten in Britain, but if you travel around the tropics, Moringa's grown as a, almost as a wild plant throughout the tropics, and it's got very high nutrition in its leaves. Now, if you can use those leaves to not just make food, but actually to make uh, value-added products or to get flavor technology out of it, and even on top of that, aroma, you know, not Moringa particularly, but this huge range of plants we've got in the tropics that are aromatic. We use them for things like um, perfumes, but you know, what about the smell of food? Why doesn't, why doesn't that attract people as an economic driver rather than just the taste of food or the, the energy content of food? So all sorts of new opportunities in small spaces. And if we add vertical, I mean, what they call vertical farming, these sorts of, you know, high energy, small scale farms grown in, in, uh, in urban spaces and, and, and houses even, you could actually use those to grow your herbs and to grow um, flavor ingredients to add to your bit, you know, to your, to your staple diet. Yeah. And do you see your work as being driven by ultimately an economic imperative that eventually if... Uh, 
if it's impossible to continue to produce wheat in the environment that I've been used to producing wheat, then I'm going to have to come to you to say, hey, I can't make any, I can't make any money anymore. Do you have any other alternatives? Uh, or do you think that the market is going to be interested in flavors and textures and you know new discoveries? Uh, both. I think you've got to say the big crops won't be enough to feed 10 billion people. <coughs> so which of the crops are we going to grow that add to this very small list of elite crops that we've got. So that's one issue. The other is actually new technologies are available to us that weren't there before that we can actually get ingredients or extracts from plants that give us all sorts of other opportunities than simply feeding people. So I think there's huge opportunities, especially coming back to where we live, the biodiversity in this part of the world. And when I say biodiversity, Malaysia is home to 1 in 20 plants. 5% of the world's biodiversity comes from Malaysia. And, um, you know, that's an opportunity. If even, even if you take the plant kingdom, half a million plant species, 7,000 is a very small number of crops, and four is, uh, is, is what we now depend on for more than half our food. There's something wrong in our arithmetic in terms of not seeing the opportunities that the 7,000, let alone the 500,000, give us. Presumably you don't get into this line of work without being a foodie yourself. Absolutely not. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's why people say, oh, it's all about agriculture. And of course, people say, well, that's not food. And of course it is. And when you say food, that's not food, that's cuisine. When you say cuisine, that's history. So you've got to be a foodie. I mean, if you're not a foodie, why would you be interested in growing stuff? So m make me jealous. What have you eaten in the course of your work uh, that I might not have had a chance to eat uh, that's been really delicious? Well, I'm going to say my favourite crop that I do research on is called Bambara groundnut. It's called the groundnut of the women in, 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 in Africa. It's grown in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. And we can make wonderful products, which we do make wonderful products from it. And, and that's nutritious and it's resilient and it's tasty. And we can make lots of things which we haven't even started exploring opportunities for that crop. That would be my first. The other is, I think... Uh, which I have to name drop, but when the Prince of Wales came and he opened and he launched our Forgotten Foods Network on the 3rd of November 2017, he, you know, he basically identified, as the network's attempting to do, that um, it's more than just the food you eat. It's the tradition and history and culture and, and everything about food, which actually gives you a narrative as, as well as just a taste. So the Forgotten Foods Network is about getting all these recipes that are being lost generationally because we're eating the same homogenized food in, in, in supermarkets and, and shopping malls, and actually getting those recipes back and then looking at them scientifically to see what the ingredients are and what the potential of those forgotten foods is for, for the future. Now, that really took us into a very interesting area because that means your mother, your grandmother, certainly my mother, who's the best cook I've ever known, has got a, a, a treasure trove, a library of, of recipes and dishes that, of course, won't be passed on because they're in her head. Now, if we can get that treasure trove, even if it's just to collect the recipes, that would have been something useful. But imagine if we could use the recipes to see what about those crops and those foods that we could actually see for the future. And have you got any uh, specific examples of, of recipes which uh, come into your purview as a result of this Forgotten Foods Initiative that you think, oh, goodness me, the world has to know about this? <laughs> I, I can't give you, and you're going to say, well, yeah, tell me all about this, but I, mean, I can tell you about ingredients, and I can tell you about foods that will be uh, from our traditions and our, our background, but I'm also interested in 
cuisines where we have preserved that, and, and I'll mention Italy as an example. But if you go to Italy, I mean, sad to say, and of course um, it's, it's well known that the British uh, diet is not the most um, alluring in the world, but that's, that wasn't always the case. You know, there were huge banquets in the medieval times when people had, uh, you know, feasts. But actually, when I grew up in southeast London, it was really a very, very poor time for food because um, school meals were awful, but of course people were the first generation of industrial food, you know, buying sliced bread and processed foods and, you know, what was called spam. curry. Spam, actually. Spam was um, was a... <laughs> there's, a there's a forgotten food, but it's not been forgotten because people still <laughs> eat it. But, but uh, you know, if you took a, a curry, it came out of a packet with raisins in it because that's what, you know, the British thought was a curry. You know, the, the, that was the best we could get in terms of diversity. But my mum, from her background, had recipes from the subcontinent, from Iran, from, you know, all over her uh, culinary history. So we were eating these wonderful foods at home. But my friends would know exactly what they ate every day. <laughs> so when you walked home from school and your, your, your schoolmate, you said, you know, what are you going to have for dinner? Oh, Monday we always have leftovers from Sunday. Friday we have fish. <laughs> the spaghetti yeah. was, it was even then in alphabet form, if you remember. It came out of a tin with different, <laughs> different letters. So that was the food I grew up with. And uh, it wasn't the one we ate, but it was the one which we were surrounded by. But when I went to Italy... I saw a completely different culture. I saw seasonality. I saw ingredients that were particular to a, a place. I saw food that came from very simple ingredients but tasted incredible. And that really got me interested in how that culture of food is part of the, the whole you know, the whole mindset of Italians is, is when's their, yeah. what's their next meal and how good is it going to be? I, I do want to talk more about Italy because I think, as you know, uh, I, I recently went on a trip to Italy to film some of this series and I, I absolutely fell in love, as I knew I would. Um, but but I, I'd love to talk about this. I wonder how that happened. right? How did it happen that in the UK, uh, kind of the market accepted that it's fine for your food to principally come from a tin? Or, you know, I, I, I think about, um, I don't know, my my grandparents would talk about things like smash so powdered yeah, mashed potato yeah. and i know bisto gravy powder how does it happen that that the uk market just accepted this that that the food is going to be coming in a in a packet or in a tin or uh, you know in a jar whereas our continental neighbors it doesn't seem like they had this same massive transition do you reckon it's just that britain was poorer and this was a way of, of getting food cheaper do you reckon it's that the british didn't care <laughs> how did this happen i wish i knew and i know that's a whole subject of a different i mean a whole series of programs but i think industrialization and and the idea that big companies big industries started started with you know if you go to italy now it's still hard to find a supermarket you know there are them of course they are but most of the food is bought in local markets and it's very rarely that the food is coming from outside it's actually seasonal and regional and you could go to i mean we lived in a small village in italy and uh, you know when i went to see my when i went to my colleague and i said where's the best butchers the village has got 12 butchers and it's only 3000 people and he'd tell me, oh, you go to that place for lamb, you go to that place for beef, you go to that place for chicken. When you go there, they get it from that hill or they get it from the side of the hill that has got the best grass. Have you thought, I could never get that in England. You'd never go to a, a, a village and say, you know, how many, how many butchers have we got and where do they get their beef and their, and their chicken and their lamb from? 
and that right. Just the the, the only thing I can I can think is similar is is pubs. I mean, there are, I definitely know villages where there will be four pubs, and you go to this guy for real ales, this guy for cider, <laughs> uh, um, and this one does the best pork scratchings. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I couldn't possibly comment, but on top of that, I think if you actually take celebrations, if you take food as something that's in your daily routine, a big lunch, you know, the family sitting to, together and eating a meal. I think we lost a lot of that, didn't we? People had TV meals, TV dinners, sat in front of the TV, didn't talk to each other. That sort of thing, which I'm glad to see being reversed in a very, I mean, you know, being very harsh on, on British food. But of course, now we're seeing a much, much greater diversity of foods and interest in cuisines and interested in regional foods even, but particularly exotic foods, which we'd never have had before. You know, every supermarket's now got those. So, so the British, you know, British change is actually very, very encouraging because people are actually much more experimental about foods that their parents would never have touched. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I can certainly, you know, I can certainly think of my own experience that I think that I've even had a positive influence on my own parents, right, through through the virtue that I've been very lucky that I've been able to travel. I've come back and I remember introducing stuff or, you know, bringing some sp- uh, spices from a different country or ha- or having had a meal in a restaurant in a different country and saying we need to go to this country's restaurant in yeah. the UK now uh, yeah. and and that ultimately you know it's partly to do with the cost right you know I'm sure for my parents it would have been more expensive to get some of the uh, ingredients and food which which I've been able to to, to buy as you said in a supermarket now um, it's you know maybe partly exposure and maybe it's also partly about that kind of narrative the fact that I've had uh, you know this particular kind of uh, I don't know soup from a particular country and I have some fond memory and I, it was explained to me about the story I'm then more inclined to want to seek it out and make it myself aren't I um, but but I, th- I think Italy's a very uh, a very good example that I think everyone has some kind of uh, I don't know positive image of Italian cooking right uh maybe it's because it, it's accessible maybe it's because it's just nice food right like how, how could you argue with putting uh you know cream on or, or cheese or butter on pasta or how could you argue with putting cheese or tomato or bread what was it that brought you to italy in the first well, place i'll tell you that's an interesting um shows one of the reasons we uh, we have to overcome bias. When you eat food, you've got to overcome a, a resistance before you've even tasted it. I'll give you an example. My Italian experience was um, was completely transformed when I went to a conference in Portugal and I met a colleague who, who later on became to be a very close friend uh, from Italy, from southern Italy. He didn't even say Italy, I'm from the south. But anyway, he said, um, let's go to a decent restaurant. The ones here are rubbish. Let's go and f- eat somewhere else. And we went somewhere else. And he said, well, that's not very good either. It's not as good as Italian food. And I said, no, no, you know, Italian food is all pastas and pizzas. And, you know, it's all very heavy and stuff like that. He said, have you ever been to Italy? I said, no. So he said, why didn't you come and try it? And um, that was when the sort of scales lifted from my eyes. Because when, when I went to Bari, when I went to southern Italy, Puglia, and he took me to a restaurant where there was no menu. And he said, what have you got? And they said, well, this is what we've got. And they served it. And the, and the dish I remember, the first one, was sea bass covered in salt. And I thought, this is going to be awful. It's going to taste, you know, there's a whole layer of about an inch thick of granules of salt on top of the fish. And I thought, how is this going to work? And of course, what they do is they remove the salt and the, the crust is taken off and you're left with this wonderful clean fresh fish in the middle of it which is you know to die for 
And then I said, well, this is incredible. And then, of course, we went to the canteen, even in the institute where we worked, and we discussed the food there because it was a canteen, but they were serving a wonderful range of, of local foods and different uh, styles. And I thought, this is completely the opposite of what I imagined Italian food would be. And that, that was the beginning of it, was, was just seeing diversity from not, of course, there are pizzas and pastas, and we know that, but there's so much else that you don't get till recently in uh, in British Italian restaurants, let's say, which would have been uh, pretty much the stodgy stuff that, that that I grew up with. Yes, and I, I think that was certainly my experience uh, of going to, to Rome as well, that, of course, you know, you have your, you know, the standard pastas and, and, and pizzas and what have you, but these are kind of for the Italians, more of a treat food, you know, that they're not necessarily a staple, or if they do have pasta, the portion will be, I don't know, maybe a fifth of, of, mm. of what I would, uh, of what I would get in an equivalent restaurant in, uh, in the UK. Um, so I suppose these, these were their principal cultural exports, right? Because they're presumably, they're the cheapest, right? They're the cheapest. Uh, and when Italians went abroad and opened a restaurant, that was the one where they, they knew they could get a trade by selling, you know, cheap ingredients and, and getting a profit. But actually, when you go to Italy, the, the, the food you get, uh, why the pasta is not going to be a huge dish is because there's so many vegetables on, 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 you know, there's antipasti and there's all the ingredients there that see, see that you could e even miss the pasta course and go straight to the fish, you know, th so that the diet there is diverse, both on the plate and between the dishes. Whereas we, we have a single plate covered in, in, in carbohydrates and, and protein. And it's all one color. Uh, <laughs> and uh, well, pr presumably as well, one reason why you know Italians when uh, when they open restaurants abroad, maybe they just don't have access to the same uh, ingredients, right? You know, they, they might not have access to fresh sea bass uh, when they're uh, opening up their New York restaurant or whatever it is. So, uh, do you kind of see Italy as as maybe uh, a, a template for the future that? that other countries could be like Italy with this kind of farm to fork model with uh, dishes changing according to seasonality uh, rather than kind of personal preference or predictability. Well, A, yes, but let me go back to a point you just made, which is a very important one. Um, you can't serve poor ingredients well in Italian food. You've got to have very, very good ingredients. So if I said sea bass, you know, yeah. If it's frozen and it's come out of a, uh, you know, out of a freezer straight onto a onto a plate, it's not going to taste the same as if it's been recently, you know, just caught. In the, and so the idea of the ingredients being absolutely fresh, and friends of mine, very close friends of mine in Naples, they'll travel miles to go to the right fishmonger to get the right fish in the right season, so that when they serve it, it's in perfect condition. Now we're not used to that. We think, well, I'll go to the supermarket and buy some fish, but the selection and the choice is critical uh, for the quality of the food because the ingredients have to be absolutely top quality. So I think that's one issue. The other, I think, is yes, it is a template, but it's not a universal template because Southeast Asia's got wonderful food, South Asia's got wonderful food, Africa has. And the interesting dynamic is the change in food habits isn't coming from the South, it's coming from the North. If you go to Scandinavia, they're all into you know, um, foraging and ingredients and, and, and freshness and quality. And, and so this idea of, a, you know, a change in diets is, is not just we've got to have Italian food all over the world, but we've got to have locally sourced ingredients that can make interesting foods where we live. It doesn't have to be all spread from somewhere else. 
and, and do you think if we do celebrate this potential diversity of crop, that potentially a, a global transition to a fully plant-based diet is more possible? Definitely. And I think if the direction is, if, even if you look now, which uh, there's a lot of issues around, but plant-based uh, animal protein, you know, the replacement for animal protein, is still very, very few ingredients, peas and, and soya primarily. Now, if you say, well, that's a step in the right direction. The other interesting thing is the people eating these uh, non-animal protein burgers are not vegetarians. They're people who actually want to eat less meat. So, you know, we're in a we're in a transition that doesn't say that you have to be a vegetarian to eat non-meat and you have to be a meat eater to eat meat. So I think, well, I think you can't do that one, can you? <laughs> you can't have vegetarians eating meat, <laughs> right. but you can, but you can have vegetarians and non-vegetarians eating the same foods and enjoying them because plant what they call plant-forward diets the idea that we have much more uh, diversity in the plants that we eat the ingredients we eat and just another point which is worth mentioning but there's now very uh, interesting research coming out that shows your health isn't just what you eat but the range of ingredients on your plate in other words the more species you eat, the healthier you are, regardless of what's in them. So something's going on in your stomach that's inter interacting between the ingredients. And if you've only got a staple crop on your plate and a piece of meat, whether it's got all the nutrients or not, it won't give you the same health benefits than if you've got 10 ingredients on your plate from different, from different plants or different ingredients, yeah. So knowing what you know, you really must pile the pressure on yourself when you yourself step into a kitchen. <laughs> I come from a family of foodies, so everybody cooks and everyone makes different foods, so we don't all uh, cook the same. But my wife, my, my son, my mother will all co cook different foods, and so we never get the same you know, uh, traditional food, the same two days running. We'd never get even the same cuisine two days running you know it'll be Thai one day and Chinese one day and Italian one day and Pakistani one day and you'd have all these foods in a week that people wouldn't have in a lifetime so that certainly makes uh, dinner much more interesting and maybe, maybe you could share a little bit about your family background with us so we can uh, get a, an idea of a sample menu during the course of a, of a week in your in your family household well I could tell you, as a child, my mother would make things that were almost discarded, which we almost don't see now, breast of lamb and neck of lamb, and ingredients that you might think, well, you know, that's all... And, and of course, you mentioned Rome before, but Rome's cuisine is based on offal. You know, it's based on, you know, it's based on offcuts. It's not based on the best ingredients. I said fresh, but I didn't say they had to all come from, you know, the, the best cuts of lean beef. They had to come from ingredients that were fresh, but could be made into interesting foods and that's what you know that's what she taught us was that the ingredients could be diverse you didn't have to have a, a, a square you know sort of steak or whatever it was that that, that came for everybody else's diet and uh, of course diversity in family history and culture meant that the foods we ate came from different eras of her, her life and our lives so you know we've evolved food habits that we probably didn't have when we were uh, young children and, and teenagers. So I'm fascinated to know what your signature dish is going to be. My guess is it's going to be something uh, Italian-inspired. <laughs> well, what, what is it that you're yeah. best at? Well, I couldn't compete with my mother's 
Asian and, and South Asian food. I couldn't keep with, uh, compete with my wife's cakes and, and, and English sweets, which are still the best in the world. So, I oh, had so you're to making a political decision. <laughs> <laughs> I've made a decision to, to, to make Italian my particular uh, interest. And for that, seafood, because that, I think, is the particular uh, speciality. Of course, you can get seafood around the world, but you will never get better seafood cooked in the way the Italians cook it. Again, simple. You know, there's no heavy uh, sauces all over it. There's no cream spread all over the fish. It's actually cooked very, very simply. And and if you take uh, spaghetti alla marinara, or take spaghetti alla vongole, the ingredients are basically three or four. You know, there's there's garlic, uh, there's there's um, um, parsley, and you know a little bit of extra, uh, say tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, and you put them in. You cook them in spaghetti or the spaghetti with the seafood. I mean, it's to die for. What else would you want in those ingredients that couldn't be cooked better? So I mean, typically, yeah, well, <laughs> typically spaghetti alla marinara has uh, mussels, right, which unfortunately yes. I can't eat. Oh, they're uh, my favorite. Oh, really? Right. Well, I, I mean, I know they're delicious, but I just unfortunately uh, can't eat them without potentially getting sick. Um, sometimes it's a risk worth taking, right? You know, a particularly <laughs> a particularly good frite, I'll give it a go. Um, yeah, sure. And so, uh, but but you're right, right? I, I think something you said earlier really resonated with me about Italian food, that it has to be good ingredients. And I think it has to be good ingredients because they're so exposed. Because it, the, the kind of the Italian tradition of, of cooking, certainly what I learned when I was there was, there's not a lot there's not a lot to do, right? Like you, you have a you have a, a kind of a set methodology where, you know, if you're maybe if you're putting garlic in your pasta um, you're maybe cooking it for a total of 15 seconds. And mm. unless you've sliced it in the right way, and unless it's in the exactly the, cooked at exactly the right oil at the right temperature, uh, it's going to be ruined. And so it has to be an amazing quality olive oil, and it has to be a good flavorful garlic, because that's the only two things that you're working with. And, um, and but, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, sort of um, dish, uh, I don't want to compare it with French cuisine, which has its own uh, rules and traditions. But Italian rules are very simple, and... As you say, the word exposed, you can't really disguise it with anything. How do you disguise? You know, that's one of the disappointments when, when you go to an Italian restaurant outside Italy and it's smothered in tomato sauce, so you actually can't taste anything. It's just this big pile of tomato sauce on top of your spaghetti. Whereas in Italy, you wouldn't get that. You know, it would be made with the barest ingredients, fresh, and if you got them wrong, there, there's no hide. You can't hide from that. And so your... Uh your, your spaghetti alla marinara, is this something which you learnt while you were working in Italy or is this something which you've uh, had to export with you uh, in your travels around the world? I learnt by eating it in Roman restaurants and saying, wow, that's good. Then perhaps peeking into the kitchen, seeing how they cooked it or then go to Italian friends who, who, who describe what they were doing and then adopting that, that dish and then probably... Wherever I go, that would be the dish that if I really wanted my favorite meal, it would be spaghetti alla marinara because you can still do it in other parts of the world if you've got the ingredients. I was going to say, it's not a dish which, which has particularly exotic ingredients, is it? No. And uh, again, the principle there is uh, fresh seafood rather than a particular species of seafood. So when you say, you know, you said mussels, and I, I agree, but clams, 
And of course, again, in Southeast Asia, we've got wonderful shellfish. And I, th I think this idea that it's got to be exactly the same wherever you go. The Italians are much more, I can't say the word Catholic, but that's the idea. They are more interested in diversity. And, and one of my friends once said to me, well, why, you know, Italian friends said, Actually, we can eat food from all over the world. It's all in Italian cuisine. <laughs> so you've got an arabiate. You, you can eat a hot pasta from Sicily, and you can eat a very, very uh, bland pasta from the north. And, of course, it's all within Italian cuisine. So this idea that cuisine is evolving and adopting and absorbing flavors from around the world is what makes Italian food so interesting as well. So if you were to cook this dish in in your home, your current home in Malaysia, would you be making any changes uh, to, to, to your recipe based on what you can get locally? Only the sea? No, I wouldn't. I mean, I think, you, you, you know, it does depend on which fish you can get and how fresh that is. And, uh, you know, even in Italy, it doesn't mean you, you're always going to get good fish because seasons and people will only eat fish in a particular time, not just of season, but a restaurant, you wouldn't, you wouldn't eat fish on a Monday. You know, you wouldn't go to a Roman restaurant and order fish because you know that it's, it's not come, uh, you know, straight from the, from the boat. So you go, if we really are selective, you'd, you'd sit down and look at the food you eat and try and put it into the context of the season and try and put it into context of the region or where you are and then say, right, what have we got? You know, I mean, I remember going to the markets in Italy and the, the fresh vegetables came in at four or five in the morning. The market would open at six. And then you would have a glut of something, asparagus. And you only had asparagus because that was there for the next three weeks. Then you didn't eat asparagus for the rest of the year. Whereas we expect to get asparagus, you know, in December in a supermarket in London saying, well, well I haven't got asparagus or strawberries, you know. And we've, we've again lost this principle that seasons determine food. And we shouldn't expect to have the same food all around the year. We should expect to what, what, what is in season is good because that's the right time for those crops to grow. Sure. I, I suppose in, if, if, I were to make a, uh, if I were to make the spaghetti, there's not much um, in terms of kind of the core ingredients that are too seasonal. I think it's pretty easy to get onions year round. T tomatoes, I suppose they are seasonal, but I suppose you can get different varieties of tomatoes throughout the year. Could, could you talk me through your basic recipe? Uh. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I can. But, I mean, you, 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 put, um, you put garlic and parsley together in oil. You cook it in the way you've described with a minimum of, of, of you know, you can't burn the garlic and it's got to be cut in quite large pieces so that you've actually got a flavor to it. You then put in your fish stock, which you've prepared, and your fish stock allows you then to create a sort of soup or, if you like, a, a gravy in which your seafood then you cook and uh, you, particularly your mussels, but even simple things like your prawns, which you take the shells off, can be used to make your stock. So that, that strengthens your stock. Then you cook your spaghetti and you make sure it's al dente so that you don't have this stodgy mass in the middle of the meal. Uh, and then, of course, you add your seafood, and it's just cooked as for short a time as possible, so that it's 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 got structure, and that's it. And then you, I mean, I always get criticised because then I sprinkle a load of parsley over the top of it, but that's that's my own particular signature. And then you can choose whether you want to put. <laughs> at, at, at this point, our Italian not. listeners are out. <laughs> I was going to say at this point, our Italian <laughs> listeners are telling you to stop, <laughs> stop interfering. <laughs> oh, how wonderful! And. Uh, 
I'd like to to end this conversation with a message of hope because lots of foodies listen to this podcast. People who enjoy cooking, often people that are that have travelled the world. I, I guess the best case scenario, uh, if I think about the work which you've been doing, uh, is that ultimately there's going to be more things to enjoy about food, right? We're going to be opening cookbooks in 20 years with ingredients that we currently haven't heard about. And these ingredients are going to be available to purchase uh, in supermarkets local to us where previously they couldn't. Can you kind of paint this optimistic picture of this world that notwithstanding the fact that we might have we might have irreparably ruined the ozone layer and there might not be a world to enjoy, if there is a world to enjoy, uh, how delicious is it going to be? Uh, very positive. I'm very optimistic because people have got bored with eating the same foods and they know that those foods which are highly processed and you know homogenized and made of the same all over the world, not very interesting anymore because you go all over the world and eat the same stuff. You can't actually see anything that's not the same as you're used to. So the public and especially young people now are much more interested in food than my generation was and that the young people are now saying actually I want something different and that drives people to to, to to, to produce ingredients that will be different. So, I mean, that's my first positive. The other is we're going to have to do it. We haven't got a choice. If we don't diversify agriculture, I'm not getting into a big speech, but the fact is those four crops won't be enough. And if they're not enough, what are the others? Well, let's make the other ones interesting ones rather than just more starch. Let's make them interesting because they're local, they're seasonal, they're nutritious, and make them into marketable and, and desirable products. And that means we've got to have cuisines because we're not just going to make cookies and biscuits out of them. We're going to make a whole range of new foods. And, of course, a place to start is what did we used to eat before we got into this downward spiral of, of uniformity and homogenized foods. So that's why I think we have to look at our past. And I would say behind all of that, there's diaspora and there's narrative. We've all got backgrounds and uh, we shouldn't disguise that. We should celebrate that. Uh, and that's where the generational connection can be. Young people learning from their grandmothers about foods that they no longer get, but they'd love to find out about. That was Saeed. I really enjoyed that chat because it got me thinking. I thought I was quite a conscious consumer by, you know, thinking about where I'm buying my food from and, and kind of also thinking about the provenance of that food, who, who's growing it, where's it being grown. But I guess there's an even deeper question, which is what are we growing in the first place? Uh, and I suppose, you know, I don't have any answers to that question and I don't really have much control. But I'm glad that there are people like Saeed that are working on it because, uh, I don't know, I, this interview kind of took me back to my university days because doesn't Saeed sound like a professor that like really, really understands what he's talking about and you can just listen to him for hours, not quite understanding everything, but being glad that someone is smart uh, and as conscientious uh, is, is taking good care of this <laughs> of this topic. Uh, so I do hope you enjoyed that interview. If you'd like to listen to next week's episode, uh, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Uh, and also, if you'd like to get in touch with me, then you can do uh, at podcast at pona.app. That's podcast at pona, P-O-N-A, dot app. All that's left to say is I will see you this time next week.
fry 250 grams of lardons on a low heat. 